Thank you very much, Gerald. And let us continue to pray for our kids as they go down and their teachers as they teach. Um, may God continue to be glorified in that. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Knollwood. If you're visiting, welcome. Um, it's exciting to have you here with us as we worship. Uh, let us know that you're here by filling out that connection card. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to take the one that's in the chair underneath you um, and use that to follow along with us. If you don't have one at home, we really want you to have one. We think that the word of the Lord is the most precious thing, uh, and we want you to have it. It is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Uh, so please take that Bible home with the one stipulation that you actually read it, and it doesn't end up on your bookshelf somewhere collecting dust. And that's what we hope for you. Uh, if not, uh, we're, today we're starting our new series in the book of Genesis. And as we continue to do that, we have been, we did buy a bunch of those ESV journaling Bibles for you. If you would like to follow along and take your notes and, you know, draw on there and all that fun stuff. Um, I know some of the, the, the kids these days do word arts, you know, and they kind of make things look pretty and all that fun stuff. Um, as they listen, yes, they are listening. And it is okay to take notes in your Bible, by the way. Uh, but we're selling those. We're not really selling them. We're kind of giving them away for 12 bucks. <laughs> uh, we're not making any money off this. So don't someone come to me and be like, oh, the church is taking money. We're not. We're not making any money off of this. But as you turn to your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 1, if you're curious as to where Genesis is, it's at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis means beginning. Hence why it's the first book in the Bible. And we're going to be starting at Genesis 1, verse 1. And as you try and find that, which is trickier than you think to find the first page in a Bible, okay? So if you're stumbling, that's okay. I flipped mine over and I was like in Leviticus. So I had to kind of do one of these. Uh, foundations are important. In fact, they're very important. We could go to Italy and see an, uh, an example of how someone did not think foundations were important with the tower, uh, the leaning tower of Pisa. Now, it's leaning, it's called the leaning tower because it is leaning and it wasn't supposed to be leaning because someone didn't think about what the foundations were supposed to be. It's a beautiful building. I'm not saying it's not, but it's definitely not meant to be like on a 30 degree angle. I remember growing up and building with Legos and uh, you, get, you get the, I think it's like the eight four by four, the four two rocks and I was building walls and I was building them up but I was building them in columns and I still remember to this day my dad saying, hey look, that's not very strong because you know, it blows over. How you can make that foundation stronger is by staggering them and he was right. Foundations are very important. If you own a house and you have a house that has a weak foundation, you need to move or, or spend a lot of money uh, fixing that foundation. Foundations are very important. And that's why we are preaching through Genesis together. This is going to take us some time. There's going to be some breaks, but it's a foundation to understanding the rest of the Bible. We get a glimpse into a time when nothing existed except God in his perfect Trinitarian glory. This story describes God's creation of the world and all of life with 
harmony in the world and how sin came into this world and wrecked all the harmony between God and his creation. How sin spread like a poison into everything that we see around us. We see the covenants and the promises of God that Rob was reminding us about just moments ago being established. And we see themes that come through the whole Bible, essentially four of them, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The word Genesis, especially if you know your Hebrew, actually is the title in the beginning. It gives this origin story. It is the beginning of all that has happened to us. And if we truly believe what 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful and and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that's really the ultimate reason why we're preaching it. But, however, there is more. We're preaching it because it also touches on many of the issues that we are dealing with today every single time we open up the news. I say open up the news because I don't even know what a newspaper is anymore. We look at questions like, why am I here? Where am I going? We'll look at how the world became incredibly messed up. What is our hope for today? So this is a book for the scientist, the historian, the theologian, the stay-at-home mom, the farmer, the accountant, and anything else that you are doing in there. For every man and woman who wants to know more about who God is. So here's some context to what is happening here. Moses writes Genesis. He actually writes the first five books of the Bible. We call that the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he wrote this on the cusp of the Exodus. And even though Israel had known what the Exodus was all about, they had lived it, they may not have been so familiar with exactly how things began, how they got to where they are, and a God who keeps his promises. You can imagine being a community of nomadic shepherds in the desert, in the wilderness, as they made their way to the land that God had promised to their forefathers and looking up at the night sky. If you've ever been in the country where there's no city in sight, where the city lights aren't essentially polluting the air, you look up the stars and what do you see? You can picture this nomadic nomadic group of shepherds walking through that desert and hearing those words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and this earth. What a way to celebrate the boundless creative goodness of the creator. Not only did God free them from slavery, but he is the same God who created the very stars that they were looking at. Obviously, he could free them from slavery. Obviously, he could get them to their promised land. So Genesis sets the theme we see for the rest of the Bible. But even these few words that we will be getting into are a summary statement of what we will, be, will continue to read. Right here in the first sentence, we begin to see who God is. So if you read with me, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. 
Father, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to open your word together, to continue in our worship of you. Uh, Lord, I worship you as I preach. For all of the rest of us, we worship as we listen. So give us hearts and ears to stand in awe of who you are, that you are indeed the God who created the heavens and the earth. And Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and I want to speak and praise your name. And Lord, there's no way I can do this on my own. How in the world could I possibly speak fully of the God who created the heavens and the earth? So by your spirit, help me to preach the same with what is needed. And use this sermon to bring glory to your name, Lord. Glory to your people and law and salvation to the lost. So as we walk through the first verse, this is the first time I've ever preached one verse, by the way. So this is interesting to me. And I really actually struggled with this all week. Because you think, oh, pastor, it's only one verse. Oh, my goodness. It's not just one verse. It's like the summary statement for the whole book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're going to split this up into three parts. In the beginning, the next one is God. And the next point is created. So in the beginning, as we look at Genesis 1-1, God tells us that at this moment, there is a beginning to the universe. There's a beginning to history. Before this moment of time, there was absolutely nothing. And I'm not talking about, you know, a desert place. I mean literally nothing. Before time, we see that God was there. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you, uh, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Even in the New Testament, in Hebrews 1, it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are your work of your hands. That's what we mean when we're talking about in the beginning. Before there was anything, God was, is. And he has always been and always will be. You know, I was talking with Mark today about this this morning, and he's excited about it. I'm like, before time, before time, God was there. And we're learning something very important about who God is. Just when we hear those words, in the beginning, what we are learning is that God wasn't created. He always was. So when we read these words, we see that not only was God always there, but that this is the moment that all things begin. Before this moment that God created, there was nothing. There was just God in his perfect Trinitarian glory. There were no plants. There were no animals. There were no people. Not even an atom existed before God spoke it into being. I, this week, I was like, because I can't remember high school science anymore. I was like, wait, what's, what's bigger, a molecule or an atom? Well, I know it's an obvious answer, but I was like, I need to make sure. So I asked Siri. And, and the computer told me, an atom. And then they went on to continue to say, an atom is the building blocks of everything. So when we are saying in the beginning, we mean before an atom was created, God was created. 
with God. You know, Eastern religion teaches that history is a never-ending cycle. That's what we call reincarnation, right? You die and just start again. You just die and you start again. To me, it sounds like the most depressing way to live. Right? We just talked about this today. Like, the hope that we have in Christ, in life and death, is, is to be with Jesus. Right? We die, or something dies, and it comes back, or something else. But time isn't a circle. It's a trajectory towards something. And if there is a beginning, there is a source, and that source is God. Isaiah 46, 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So we learn that with a trajectory, there is a direction and a purpose. There's a purpose to what is about to happen. To say that there is a beginning is to say that there is a cause and source of that beginning. And what amazes me about our world today is that we who are Christians are mocked throughout history for believing in the truth of the resurrection that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yet for some reason it's easier to believe that something came out of nothing. Like if that were even possible. How in the world can we have any sort of, well, literally anything, no, meaning of life, if something came out of nothing? You are someone that came from a chance. But know this, in the beginning tells us that there was a source to all things, that there is a direction to all things, that time is a trajectory, not a cycle. And if there is a source there's a purpose and a direction. So what does it mean that God was at the beginning and the source and the cause of all that begins? How can anything, how can anything undermine the purpose and the cause and the will of the one who began everything? What does that mean about the help God offers to his people? As Israel was wandering through the desert, as they were in the time of waiting, in those simple words, they were reminded of the purpose and the future and the direction of what was happening to them at that moment of time. And just amazing to reflect upon in the beginning. In the beginning means that there is a cause and a source of history, and God is the cause and the source of that. That means that that he, that he has given a purpose to creation. He has given a purpose and a meaning to life. There's no randomness that we see around us. It wasn't some sort of like random act that happened, like mathematically impossible situation. God is the one that gives shape to all that is here. Now, if he does all those things, you need to ask yourself a few very serious questions. What is your relationship with the one who was there before all things were created? Do you know him? Do you know his purpose for you and for your life? And here's the big one. Do you know how to be in his favor? See, these questions are important. Because if there is a beginning, there is an end. There always is. 
Isaiah 43 says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. And Genesis doesn't just tell us how the world began, but it also points to how the world will end. As we open this first pages of our Bibles, we should believe that God, the God of creation is also the God of new creation. And only those who have repented and believed will be part of that new creation. So those words, in the beginning, they don't just stop there and, and help us ponder about the things that were there before all things were, but they bring us deeper into understanding and knowing who God is, because that second point is God. We see the, the cause and the source to all that is beginning right here. Do you see what the Bible does? The Bible brings us back to the main subject of all that this is about. In fact, the main subject of the whole Bible is God. Growing up, we always, uh, Sunday school was a struggle sometimes because we, we talked about how things that we should do, but we often missed the point of who the hero of the story is or is. God is always the main subject of the Bible. Every page that you flip through is God. Are there other subcategories? A Baptist minister from the 1600s who was instrumental in the Baptist Confession of 1689 was Benjamin Heath. He wrote a catechism that is known as Heath's Catechism. I think it's a funny way to say that. And for that, for writing that, King Charles II threw him in prison during the time of what is called the Restoration. His catechism was a, had a fascinating first question, but I want to first look at the second question, because the second question is the exact same as what we often hear, hear about the Westminster Catechism, which is this. What is the chief end of man? The answer to that is a very simple one. The man's chief end, or humanity, if you want to change out the words, humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love that. To enjoy God forever? Oh, man. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Psalm 73, verse 25 to 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my bones, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What is the chief end of man? To live for God and enjoy him forever. But the first question that he came up with is this. What is the first and best being? And the answer is God is the first and the best being. Genesis brings us right to him. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Or Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Or Psalm 97, verse 9, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. When we say this, we're not saying that God was ever created, but that he is categorically and infinitely on his own. He is the God who was in the beginning. And when the scriptures take us back to the beginning, what we find is that God is there. And the first thing that happens in all of history, God is the actor. And we learn that there is only one being who has not been created. 
and we see that God can be known. Just like Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The one who created all that has shown himself to us, the one who has created all things is showing himself to us through creation, just like Romans 1 says, who revealed himself plainly through humanity. See, we study God's word, we need to ask a few questions. We need to ask that one question, what are we learning about who God is? Because if God is the main subject of the Bible, that's the first question that we need to ask. We often make the fallacy of saying, what does this mean to me? I don't care. The story is about God. Tell me what you're learning about who he is, and that will determine what it means to you. I'm not saying don't ever ask that question. Just ask it in order. So when we come to God's word, we ask that question, what do we learn about who God is? Genesis 1 1 forces us to know the one who created. J.I. Packer put it this way. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life's blindfolded. As it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you, this way you can waste your life and lose your soul. But to know God to know the subject of the Bible. As Spurgeon describes, he goes, all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. You struggle with pride? Learn more about who God is. Then you begin to see how small you are. And yet how loving God is that he saved you. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge your, the intellect, nothing so magnifying the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of this deity. Spurgeon concludes. If God, who was there before the beginning, who is the source and cause of all history, can be known, are you taking the time to know him? Don't stumble through life like you've got a blindfold on trying to figure out how things are going. Get to know who he is. You know, one of the haunting verses of Romans 1 is verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, because God plainly makes himself known, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what it means to lose your soul and waste your life. Did you know that science started with the original intent of knowing who God is? That's what science is. So as we look at Genesis 1 and continue through Genesis, as you spend time in your own study, you've got to ask yourself that question. What are we learning about who God is? And right now, we have just learned that God is the source and the cause of all that has happened. He was before the beginning. He was before time. He was there. God simply is. So what are we learning about who God is? Just in this one sentence, okay? So you understand why it's like I'm just doing one verse. He is transcendent. 
1 Timothy 6, 16 says, you alone has, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Meaning that there is an infinite distance between him and his creation. He is categorically and infinitely above all other beings. And because he has he was before time and created all things, he is over everything else in terms of his nature. He is infinite. He's not finite like us. I was just at a funeral on Friday. We all die. Well, or until Jesus comes back. We're finite people. He is infinite. He is independent of everything. We can't even get out of bed on our own. And if you're like me in the morning, it's like, I wish I had a lift. He is immutable, which means he doesn't change like us. But praise God, we can, by the grace of God. The word God in this text is Elohim, which is actually plural. So someone's going to come to me and be like, hey, pastor, it's plural. It's talking about the Trinity. Why didn't you talk about that? Because that's not what it's talking about. That's why I didn't talk about that. The word plural is it's plural because it's, it's magnifying the majesty of God who created. He is the one who created all things. Not only is he transcendent, but he is personal. Because why does he create? Right? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God like when was the last time you actually truly enjoyed God that's a good question to be honest in the beginning God God didn't just create the world and leave it but wills it to be known to for to be known and to share in a relationship with others outside of himself in the very first chapter of Genesis we see how God walked with Adam and Eve that's mind-blowing to me like we can talk about God existing and always has existed and get into philosophy or whatever. I don't. God, the holy God, literally walked with humanity. He, he, he walked with them. So you can think of that hymn, right? He walks with me, he talks with me. You know, that's what it originally was all about. In the beginning, God he created humanity to have a relationship with him. And we see the promise of the one who will crush the serpent's head so that it will allow God to be with his people once again. We just celebrated Christmas. That is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We are told in Proverbs 8, verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. He is a father who sent his son to be rejected, to be raised up on a Roman cross, to die a horrific sin so that his people would be reconciled to him. It is in Genesis that we will see how you can know and be known by God. And Genesis will stir in your hearts an affection for the one who made you in a world gone stupid crazy. We can know and see Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
only do we see how he's transcendent and personal, we're seeing that he's almighty because he's simply the one who created. Simply speaking, into being all things. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. And why would God create such a vast universe just for a bunch of people like us? Well, Psalm 19, 1, verse 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of the God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. What type of power does that show? So let me ask you this question. If you were to look at the chair that you're sitting on right now, and with the greatest and the most amazing authoritarian voice, without touching it on your own or getting somebody else to do it, could you get the chair itself to move? No, you can't. I I think I've told this story before about as a kid, you know, driving through the Rocky Mountains and you see the Rocky Mountains poking over the horizon and then you're saying, I remember learning in Sunday school that if I have faith that's strong enough, just like a mustard seed, I can get that mountain to move. Mountain moved. It didn't happen. Because that would have made news. God simply speaking into being everything. God creates, shows his omnipotence, his almighty, his infinite power. If God is not almighty, he isn't merciful. Stephen, a pastor named Stephen said this way, how vain would the eternal counsel if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. Because mercy requires uh, someone to do something. God's power is like himself. It's infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can never be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. In the beginning, God. So what does this have to do with us? Both God's transcendence and his immensity work together. Jeremiah 23 says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord? And not a God far away? Can man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. Like Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24 perfectly pictures the the transcendence of God. He is far away, but at the same time, you could never run away from him. God's transcendent nature strives to keep him distant and remote from his creation, both in space and time, which means he's not like us. But he is in a different category. But his eminent nature works to draw him near to his creation and to sustain the universe. God's love for his creation is so great that we see his immense overshadowing his transcendence. And we see that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God's almighty, infinite power means that he is merciful. He gives us what we don't deserve and withholds the things that we do deserve. He's going to keep his promises. But because God is almighty, it means that he can't be undermined. It means he can't be restrained. 
his plans can't be frustrated, or anything like that right now. It's interesting, uh, right now on Disney, there's a show called Percy Jackson, which is a, a novel series and stuff like that, but it's based upon the Greek gods. And one of the things that I'm always reminded about is how the gods of the Greek world could always be restrained and held back. In my mind, I'm going, how in the world is that a god? My god can't be restrained. My god, by his speaking, speaks everything into being. He has always been. Even the Greek gods, if you know your Greek mythology, were created. God is almighty. He is creator. And because he is almighty, the same power that created the world is the same power that is redemptive. In his almighty power, he overthrows sin in the lives of those whom he has saved. God is mighty to save. And as the Israelites looked up at the night sky to reflect upon the beauty of creation, hear those words as they look to the future promises. In the beginning, God. The one who caused the Nile to turn to blood. The one who caused hail to come from sky. The one who brought infestations of frogs and gnats and boils. It's the same God who rescued them from slavery. It is the God who will fulfill all his promises. Because he, has, because he was the cause and the source of all things. He is the one who set the trajectory. How could anything undermine our God? Brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is the one we sing to. This is the one who is worthy of every ounce of who we are. deserve any of the grace that he has poured out on us but he has given life to all those who return in the beginning god tells us that god isn't some sort of imaginary friend i don't know if you had an imaginary friend growing up i never did i remember actually thinking when i was a kid i had a friend who had an imaginary friend i was like i don't want an imaginary friend uh and i tried to do that and i was like this is dumb uh, i was a weird child uh, I, I didn't even have stuffed animals. Like, I didn't even, like, I tried to have affection for, like, a teddy bear. I was like, this is dumb, too. Like, you know, give me my Lego or something. Like, I'll build something. In the beginning, God. <laughs> He's not just a crutch we bring out when things are hard and we need something to lean on just for a bit so we can put it back in the closet to get checked. When we read those words in the beginning, God, we are shown an all-powerful God without beginning and end who is other than his creation, who created something out of nothing. Should this not bring comfort to us? It should actually bring fear and comfort all at the same time. And when I think of these words, I'm reminded that there is a God who is above my messiness. Or the messiness that I find myself in today. He is the one who drives history to a conclusion. It brings me comfort to know that someone other than me is the one who's running the show. Because if I was running the show, it'd be a hot mess. That I am not the master of my own fate. Or the captain of my own soul. Because I stand here in this place right now at this moment of time 
purely by God's grace and mercy and His ability to make new things. And when we don't reflect upon those words in the beginning, God, we become very, it becomes very, we get into a very dangerous place. We start to make God into something that looks like us. We make Him into a God who overlooks our flaws, who blesses our indiscretions. When we lose sight of these words, we make a God into a being we can shape and fit. Think about this with me, though. Is there something you really want? Do you really, really, really want a God that's like you? I'm not saying that you're not loved and beloved and unique and special and all these things. Don't. My mom told me I'm special. I get it. But do you really want God to be like you? Do you really want God to have the same limits that you are limited by? Do you really want God to have the same fears as you have? Who is paralyzed by the very same things that you are paralyzed by? When you are on your knees, when your tears are filling your eyes, when you're praying over your children, when you're at the bedside of the loved one that you want who's dying and are sick, when you've got tears in their eyes, who do you want to pray to? One who's like you or the one who is transcendent, almighty, personal God? In the beginning, God. And we really sit down and we think about it. We don't want some sort of cheap plastic God that we can put on our shelf. We want an all-powerful God who is bigger than our problems we face and can defeat the things that keep us up at night. We want an almighty God. We want a God who, with these words, shows us in the beginning, God. This is the God who created. This is, he is not like us. He is not like anything else. As I was reflecting upon this, I think sometimes, oftentimes, we treat Satan as if, by the way. We, we treat him as almighty. Like we that he can't be undermined. Satan can't create. He cannot speak into being anything. And in fact, he is a slave to the will of God. Everything comes from God. For he is the one who forms all things. Which means we have a God who creates. In the beginning, God created. That last point here. Brothers and sisters, we don't believe that this crazy thought that something came out of nothing. We believe that God, who has always been, created all things, and that before he did, there was nothing. God made what didn't exist before. And I think really hard about this because I think that's ultimately, at the end of the day, what something like a theory of evolution does. Just follow with me. It's not just a theory that is an option for all of us to believe in. But if I can believe that something came out of nothing, then there is no need for God. And if there's no need for God, that means that there is no lawgiver. And if there's no lawgiver, that means I can do whatever I want. Whatever floats your boat, mate, you can go do it. Further, when we look at God creating, we also see a God who created Adam as a historical figure. Adam wasn't developed over a process. He was created. 
This is the foundation for the faith. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, meaning that God created is foundational to the Christian faith. And how did he create? Psalm 33 says, by his word. And what does it mean to create? Well, let's look at that word. That word create is tied to the word God, which is Elohim. That word God, God created, that word created is only ever used for God. Because he's the only one that creates something out of nothing. I love art. I love looking at it. Rembrandt is a beautiful painter to my, in my mind. I like Renaissance, beautiful stuff. I love architecture. I love music. I'm a closet artsy, fartsy guy. I love studying those things. I love looking at them. I play music. I love it. But here's the problem with me. Is that, well, A, all of my art sucks. But I only create from what already exists. When I take a piece of paper and I doodle, I took a piece of paper, which was created by what? Chopping down a bunch of trees and mushing them together. I know I simplify it, but I didn't create the trees. Who created the trees? God created the trees. I didn't even, the lead, well, they don't put lead in anything anymore. Something about poisoning. The lead that you use in a pencil to draw or sketch, you didn't do that. The wood in the pencil is not yours. It comes from the tree that came from the paper. When God created, he created everything from nothing. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. So when we look at this word create, it's always tied to the subject of God, always. It is a word that shows the uniqueness of what God did. Out of nothing, he created something. And if God created the heavens and the earth, which is a short form for saying everything, everything in the middle, he created everything. If God created something out of nothing, that means he can create you into a new person. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away before the new, behold, the new has come. If God didn't create, that verse can't be true. But our God created, which brings me hope. Because that means in Christ, I am a new creation. I am something new. The sweet, merciful, gracious words of God to a weary, broken sinner who is crying out, there has to be more creation is echoed in 2 Corinthians for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the lights of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ God's creative power and his redemptive power cannot be separated so when we look at these words in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth it brings the Christian hope because he can create a new, a new creation in you it brings hope to the unsaved person when they're like I am a total screw up there's no possible way that anything could change in my life no 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 
What's impossible, in my mind, is something coming out of nothing. But God created. And if God created in the beginning, he can create you into a new creation by the grace of God for all of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. When they repent of their sin, to repent means to acknowledge that God is right and you are wrong. I know that is hard in our world. That's why you need a new heart in order to do that. Because if you're married, yes, you, right? But by faith in Jesus Christ, who is, as Varov read for us earlier today, today, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, who died on a Roman cross for our sins and rose from the dead three days later, because again, who could hold back the one who created all things? If anyone repents and acknowledge that they are wrong and God is right and believe that Jesus' work is sufficient to save, will be saved, they are now a new creation. And that is possible, and we know that to be true because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We stand before a holy God based upon Jesus' finished work. So remember those questions. Do you know how to be in favor with God? The only way to be in favor with God is to have faith in him, and that faith is shown through repentance and belief. I was talking to an older friend of mine about preaching Genesis 1-1, um, who I'm pretty sure stole my idea of preaching through Genesis, right? You know, that's fine. It's not my Bible, you know. <laughs> and I said, how in the world... How in the world do I take what is said in nine words, because I just counted, and put it in a 45-minute sermon? How in the world do I take all that this says and give it into a concise thought for my church to have as they go throughout this week. And I, I stress about this a lot. So what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How in the world can I better what God says in his Bible? Just as the major themes throughout the Bible are creation, sin, redemption, new creation, we see this at the very beginning. Genesis is the foundation it is the foundation. God created the heavens and the earth. He is the cause and the source of everything. He is almighty, transcendent, but knowable. And the same power that created at the beginning can create you and me into a new creation. Christmas Eve, 16, I'm sorry, Christmas Eve, 16. Christmas Eve, 1968, in the mid-1900s. My kids told me I was alive in the late 1900s. There were some words. <laughs> Apollo 8, for the very first time, allowed humanity to see the earth rising above another sphere. Humanity is seeing this. Broadcasters were speechless, apparently. I wasn't there. What could you possibly say as the earth rose above the moon? Astronaut William Anders knew what to say. 
Jesus wraps it up very beautifully. And if you were around, you remember what he said. He said these words, in the beginning, God created It's a question that we need to think about. Creation gives glory to God who created all that is seen. The question for you and for me is, do you acknowledge the one who has created, and what does that look like in your life today? How does this bring hope for us? Well, brothers and sisters, in the beginning, God created. When I'm struggling with suffering, I'm always reminded of Job 48. Where were you when I laid the foundation? of the earth tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements surely you know or who stretched the line upon it on what was it base bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy where were you or psalm 136 replies to him who by understanding made the heavens for, the, for his steadfast love endures forever. It means that I can trust God who created all things as the one who is infinite, has infinite wisdom to work all things out for my good and his glory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us together bask in the wonder and the splendor of our almighty God who creates. And as we do this, there's this book by Ian Valancourt called The Dawning of Redemption, which I read I don't know, last weekend. Great book. Ian Valancourt is a prof at uh, Heritage. I encourage you to read it as you can see the, how God point, how God writes Genesis to Exodus, I forget, the whole Pentateuch, and points to Christ, if you're struggling with that. So I encourage you to pick this up today. I have one copy, which is mine. You can borrow it. You can't keep it. So let us pray.